afternoon. I'm Frank Ling, and this is the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, animal hybrids, mating gifts, and throwing it up. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor John Staschel, who will talk about Einstein's miraculous year. Also, we'll find out what are the largest telescopes. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty excited. I've made some great discovery. And what's that discovery? There is a god. Whoa, where does he live? Because <laughs> I've, been, I've been meaning to have some words with this god. <laughs> So-called person. It doesn't matter, because how else could there be ice cream? Process of freezing milk. <laughs> Although, you know, I still haven't figured out what his favorite flavor is, so that's the mystery. I would, I would believe it'd be the blood of Christ, but the, uh, but I guess it depends which god, really. I guess if it was the blood of Christ, it must be a strawberry flavor or kind of I, pink, right? syrupy, I think, yeah. For people out there who cannot resist strawberry ice cream, there may be a solution out there. Oh, what is that? Apparently, a psychologist at UCI has shown that they can get people to become less addicted to certain foods if they can associate certain false, unpleasant memories of that particular food and then uh, help them avert those fattening or unhealthy uh, things to eat. So it's just kind of like Pavlovian conditioning. Basically. But, Electroshocks uh, work just as well, too. <laughs> you know? So actually, for alcoholics, there's actually a uh, compound that they've used that makes people feel sick, and that's actually been used to condition alcoholics to right. uh, have an aversion for alcohol. Mm-hmm. But uh, the psychologist, uh, Elizabeth Loftus at UCI, has shown that by training the mind to uh, associate false memories, unpleasant ones, with particularly fattening food, they can help them lessen their dependence on it. Oh, okay, so is this kind of like thinking about Rosie O'Donnell while you're eating it or something <laughs> like that? <laughs> Uh, Not well, that I have anything against Rosie O'Donnell. <laughs> more along the lines of like having childhood uh, memory of you know overeating on something and getting sick off of that. Those types of memories okay. seem to be the ones that she's associating with these behaviors. Okay. Yeah, because I can't eat clam chowder for the life of me nowadays. <laughs> really? Yeah. That's like one of my favorite dishes. Well, again, it's the whole Rosie O'Donnell things. <laughs> Anyways, this is actually reported in a recent edition of our favorite journal, The Proceedings, Proceedings of the National Academy of Science. PNAS. All right, Frank, so have you encountered uh, many gold diggers in your uh, dating life? Well, since I have no money, I'm not sure. (laughs) I don't think I'm lucky enough to encounter them. (laughs) You're attracting high-quality females. (laughs) The less materialistic types, right? That's right. Me, I'd prefer attracting any human. Really, it would be nice. But anyway, or animal, I don't care. You mean more friends? (laughs) Well... I, I have no illusions whatsoever as about us being friends, but anyway. <laughs> so uh, it turns out actually that if you give worthless gifts, you'll probably get the chicks. Wow. So um, I still have a lot of junk in my garage. Maybe I should uh, work on clearing it out, huh? It, it might work, but it has to be a very special type of worthless gift. It has to be very expensive for you to buy, but worthless to the female. Oh, like a stolen bowling ball with no holes in it. <laughs> that might work. I'm not sure where you'd find one of those. <laughs> This actually is, is an issue for uh, males who are trying to find females, but trying to get the females who won't just run off with anything that they give them, the women who would actually be attracted to them uh-huh. for what they have to offer. What about a song and dance? <laughs> I don't know if that's attracted to anyone except in the movies. <laughs> 
Oh man, I learned everything from the movies. Yeah, so this is actually an interesting study. It was uh, it was carried out in the recent edition of the Proceedings of the Royal Society of London, and it was Peter Sozu, a theoretical biologist, and Robert Seymour, a mathematician, uh, both who are at the University College London, and they basically set up an experiment to test the uh, sincerity problem here. So you want to try and attract females who won't run off with all your goods, right. but yet you have to also communicate that you're interested in them and are going to be a good provider. So uh, basically what they did is they gave males three possibilities. What they could do is they could either give uh, very extravagant gifts that were valuable to the female, they could give gifts that were worthless to both people, or gifts that cost a lot for the male, but were worthless to the female. And it looked like that the latter, where you give a very expensive gift, but it's worthless, kind of like a bouquet of flowers or something, actually winds up being the best metric for determining a good mate. Wow, thanks for advice. <laughs> According to um, Mike Ritchie, an evolutionary biologist at St. Andrews University, it says, it's the wrapping that counts. Ah. Good to know if you want to avoid getting the gold diggers. Uh, me, I don't think I'll have that problem, really, because I've got no gold. <laughs> Isn't your heart made of gold? <laughs> Last time I checked, I think it was made out of protein. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so, again, very fascinating work published in the recent edition of the Proceedings of the Royal Society. So, Charles, what are some of your goals in life? One of them, of course, I think will be trying to get some gold. How about getting sued for $300 million? Uh, well, I'd like to sue someone for $300 million and win. <laughs> so it turns out that you can do that. You can sue NASA. What do they do? Well, they blew up successfully the Temple One Comet with their Deep Impact probe, actually uh, on uh, July the 4th earlier this year. Right, right, okay. That hasn't made uh, astrologer Marina Bai very happy. Uh, according to her, it has interfered in her abilities to do astrological work, and it has distorted her horoscope. So basically she's saying that it's misaligned all of the, the stars, I guess, because this comet's... Blown out of the sky. You know, who knows what the environmental impact of this <laughs> event will be. She'll have to go on to a whole new brand of crazy. Right. <laughs> so she's actually suing NASA for $300 million because it's affected her life or what? Yeah, affected her horoscopic abilities. So what's your horoscope say lately? Mine? I think I'm going to live. <laughs> for how much longer, though? Oh, now that Temple One's out of the sky, you know. <laughs> My fortune cookie horoscopes always give me lotto numbers nowadays. Yeah, me too. <laughs> what happened to fortune cookies that would actually tell you fortunes? We ran out of fortunes. <laughs> All right, so uh, what's your favorite type of animal? Well, according to the Chinese horoscope, I was born a year to rabbit, so I'll go with the rabbit. I've only eaten it once, and that's quite good. How about a sphinx? Those aren't real, are they? <laughs> <laughs> No, but at least perhaps the fly version of it is. The fly version? Yeah. So it turns out that a group of researchers have found a species of fly that have uh, combined from two separate species. Uh-huh. So one of the big questions in uh, nature is how do new species arise? Right. And uh, one of the common explanations is, of course, a group of uh, animals will accumulate some mutations, mm -hmm. get separated, uh -huh. and start being a separate breeding colony. Right. Of course, the other possibility is that you have two species that are similar, uh -huh. and they mate to produce a, a new offspring. I wonder if we're the product of super uh, intelligent being and monkeys and then somehow just wiped out the super intelligent beings. <laughs> <laughs> if so, it's a question which, uh, which one we inherited the most from, I think. <laughs> So actually, researchers have now shown the second case is actually happening in nature. Oh, really? Where, where two species actually will mate and produce a new inbreeding. What, penguins and dolphins? <laughs> <laughs> no, well, it actually turns out uh, an apple maggot fly and the blueberry maggot fly. Okay. <laughs> so kind of like penguins and dolphins. <laughs>
except completely different. So it's actually very rare because usually when you have two species like this, either they'll produce something like a mule, right. which can't reproduce with either species, or it'll just start breeding again with the parent species. Uh-huh. But this is apparently a very special case because this new species really likes a particular type of plant, a honeysuckle type plant. Right. And so that sort of separated the species out and allows them to I thought this interspecies stuff was like unethical or immoral. <laughs> well, it's happening in nature. And can nature be wrong? You gotta wonder. <laughs> I don't know. Well, in nature, they eat their young, so I'm not sure. <laughs> Anyway, so again, this is actually very fascinating work. And in fact, it was published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You are listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, joining us in just a few minutes is Professor John Stachel, who will discuss Einstein's miraculous year. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, after 1905, physics would never be the same again. In those 12 months, Einstein shattered many cherished scientific beliefs with five extraordinary papers that would establish him as the world's leading physicist. This is the year that we celebrate Einstein's miraculous achievements, and joining us today to discuss Einstein's miraculous year is Professor John Stachel. Professor Stachel is Professor of Physics Emeritus at Boston University, where he directs the Center for Einstein Studies. He is the editor of the book Einstein's Miraculous Year, Five Papers That Changed the Face of Physics, which is just in a new edition. Professor Stachel, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Happy to be here. Well, certainly a pleasure to have you on the program, and you've certainly edited, a, I think, a very fascinating book, Einstein's Miraculous Year. But I guess I'm curious, for those maybe who are a little outside of physics or even academia, if you could give a, a sense of just how miraculous, how amazing this, his achievement was during this year. Well, maybe I'll disappoint you, but <laughs> I don't think it was the most miraculous oh, okay. year in Einstein's life, actually. Yeah. I think his work on the general theory of relativity culminating in, at the end of 1915 was the most miraculous mm. accomplishment. Einstein's miraculous year in 1905 was a year in which he suddenly appeared from nowhere mm. and made a place for himself on the face of theoretical physics. Mm. But this made him well-known in the physics community within the next few years. But it wasn't until his work on the general theory of relativity culminating in the final formulation of the theory at the end of 1915 and then the confirmation of his prediction of the bending of light of starlight that passed near the sun's limbs that Einstein became a public figure and known outside of the physics community. That didn't take place until 1919. Mm, I see. But many of his papers that he did write during those years eventually led to his Nobel Prize and then another Nobel Prize for another person. Yes, that's true. His accomplishments could be divided into three main groups. First of all, he continued classical physics. It's a myth that he was entirely a revolutionary figure. One of his greatest accomplishments was to continue to complete the development of classical physics. Mm. The second group of papers was, again, an attempt to resolve the problems that had arisen in trying to combine classical physics, which was basically a mechanistic view of the universe, mm. with classical electrodynamics, Maxwell's theory. Mm. And the attempts to do this on the basis of Newtonian views of space and time proved impossible. And Einstein, therefore, had to develop a new conception of time primarily, and then from that, new views about space. And this was his work on the specialty of relativity, which resolved the apparent contradictions between mechanics and electrodynamics. I see. But the only work of his in 1905 that he himself described as very revolutionary was his work on the quantum theory. Mm. In this paper, he went beyond Maxwell's electromagnetic theory of light, that light is a classical wave, to the viewpoint that there's a particulate or particle aspect mm. to light. He called it at that time the light quantum. Mm. And w what he showed was rather limited at that time. He showed that in a certain range 
of frequencies, mm-hmm. a high frequency limit, light behaved as if it were composed of a series of statistically independent particles. Mm-hmm. But he was very cautious because he realized that light could not be simply a classical right. gas of particles. And indeed, it was only 20 years later that the quantum mechanical theory of gas was mm-hmm. developed and could treat the photon as not a classical gas of particles, but quantum mechanical gas of particles. Mm-hmm. But this work on uh, showing that one had to go beyond Maxwell's theory of light and electromagnetism in general to a quantum theory of light was the beginning of uh, the true quantum revolution, mm-hmm. which a- as of 1905, Einstein already recognized as something quite revolutionary. And he was the first person to say that not only classical electromagnetic theory, but classical mechanics would have to be modified to take into account of these new quantum phenomena, mm-hmm. which he pointed the finger at as the truly revolutionary development mm, right. of 1905. Wow, wow. Basically, as you mentioned, sort of paved the way for the field of quantum physics, really. Exactly. Max Planck had introduced the idea of the quantum of action mm-hmm. in 1900, mm-hmm. but Planck was extremely conservative mm-hmm. and tried his best to show that the quantum of action could be fitted into classical physics. Mm-hmm. As I said, Einstein was the first one to clearly say no, not only classical mechanics, but classical electromagnetic theory will have to be modified mm-hmm. in view of the existence of the quantum of action. And within a few years, he showed that not only light, but the vibrations of a solid body would have to be quantized, have mm-hmm. to be treated as a quantum effect in order to explain the behavior of solid bodies uh, at low temperatures. Mm-hmm. So that it was actually this work, uh, an Einstein's application of the quantum theory to solid bodies, mm-hmm. the quantum theory of a vibrating solid, that made Einstein's name most famous among physicists at that time mm. because this had immediate consequences for the kind of research that was going on to explain the specific heat uh, of solids at low temperature, which had previously defied mm. explanation. And actually, actually that is the, his work on that, in that field that brought Einstein to the attention of the Berlin group of physicists mm. who ultimately invited him to join them in Berlin as a member of the Academy of Sciences. Mm. This took place at the end of 1913, beginning of 1914, and that, that's the reason why he moved to Berlin. So it was not okay. the other papers that we've been right. talking about, but his work on quantum theory of solids, which was done in 1907, that really brought him to the center of attention in the physics community. Right, right. Well, I guess as you mentioned, most people don't realize that that was what he won the Nobel Prize for. Well, that's, Black that, that's a curious story. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. By 1921, when he was, he'd been considered by the, for the Nobel yeah. Prize several times, yeah. but by 1921, when he finally was awarded the prize, uh-huh. there was a member of the Nobel Prize Committee, mm-hmm. a Swedish psychophysiologist, mm-hmm. who uh, applied some complicated mathematics to the study of the behavior of light in, in the human eye. And uh, this man was on the Nobel Prize Committee, and he thought he had discovered a flaw in Einstein's theory of general relativity. Uh. And for that reason, he refused to allow the committee to give Einstein the uh. Nobel Prize for work in relativity. So they decided, well, to give him a prize for his work on the photoelectric effect, Mm -hmm. which was one of the consequences that Einstein drew from his work in 1905 on the quantum theory of light. It was not the central point of that theory. It's often called the, the photoelectric effect paper. That's, again, a misconception. Uh-huh. Einstein's papers, that, particularly his early papers, typically took the following form, mm-hmm. three parts. First, he would propose some paradox or some puzzle mm-hmm. in existing physical theory. Mm-hmm. Then he would propose a solution to that puzzle. Mm-hmm. And then he would look for the experimental consequences that would enable one to test mm-hmm. whether that solution was valid or not. Mm-hmm. And in the quantum paper, the photoelectric effect only occurs in the third part, mm-hmm. which is looking for some physical consequences of his light quantum hypothesis. Mm-hmm. So it's far from being the photoelectric effect paper, that was just one of the tests he suggested right. to see whether his light quantum hypothesis had any validity. Right. Well, isn't that normally the case, I guess, with Nobel Prizes? Oftentimes, they don't always uh, recognize the particular achievement which the scientist necessarily That's absolutely true. If you right. drew up a list of all the Nobel Prize winners and ask people, first of all, have you heard of these <laughs> Nobel Prize winners? Most physicists wouldn't even have heard right. of most of the Nobel Prize winners of the past. And if you ask what were the prize given for, you'd often get the wrong answer right. from the physics <laughs> community.
But this is, this is often true in human life, isn't it? Sure. One, one gets rewarded for the wrong things and punished <laughs> for the right things. <laughs> we do. Say <laughs> Yes. Well, I, I mean, I guess there's there's no real way to rank it. But would you say that perhaps is those two papers that he wrote on special relativity uh, rank a little higher, or perhaps more influential than the uh, the other papers? I would say they were comparable. The quantum mm-hmm. paper, after all, started the, the quantum, quantum revolution, revolution sure. which we're still right. experiencing the consequences of. Yeah. The papers on special relativity certainly revolutionized the way that other questions in physics were approached. Mm. These were examples of what he called the theory of principle. Mm. They didn't tell you anything concrete about the nature of the world, but they mm. told you if you're going to describe how the world is built, mm. you must take into account these principles. I often compare them to traffic rules. The traffic rules don't tell you where to drive, but they do tell you if you don't want to get arrested, you better <laughs> obey the traffic rules. Right. <laughs> so the principle of relativity and the light principle, the two basic principles of the special theory of relativity paper, are just that, principles. Mm-hmm. They tell you if you're going to construct a theory of matter or radiation, you'd better observe these principles mm-hmm. or you won't get an acceptable theory. Right. But they don't themselves constitute constructive theory. So all the basic work that was done in constructive physics from 1905 on had to be based on the special theory of relativity. But as early as 1907, Einstein realized that if he were going to include gravitation mm-hmm. within this constructive theory of physics he was tr- looking for, they would have to pass beyond special relativity. And there, again, he was quite alone. All other physicists were still trying to construct a special relativistic theory of gravitation. Mm-hmm. They'd accepted his own work at a time when he saw he had to go beyond it to proceed. Mm-hmm. And his great achievement, as I said, in 1915 mm-hmm. was to show how one could construct a generalized or mm-hmm. general Algemeinen germ, which really might be better translated, a universal theory of mm. relativity. And this was his theory of gravitation and inertia. Right. And again, we're still today trying to understand how to reconcile his theory of gravitation and inertia with his ideas about quantum theory, which have developed into quantum mm. mechanics. Right. Today we have basically two separate branches of physics, each of which lays claim to fundamental significance. Mm-hmm. Quantum theory, mm-hmm. particular quantum theory of fields, the special relativistic version of quantum theory, mm-hmm. and general relativity the theory of best theory of gravitation and inertia that we have today. Mm-hmm. And these two theories are basically irreconcilable mm-hmm. at the foundational level, mm-hmm. yet they both claim to describe uh, in certain regions the same phenomena. Mm-hmm. And therefore, one must look for a greater and more all-encompassing theory which could include both. Mm-hmm. And that's the search for what we call a theory of quantum gravity. Right. Now, quantum gravity is like X in algebra. It's just a name <laughs> for the unknown. We don't have such a theory. Right. It's the search for some way to construct an all-encompassing theory, which would, on the one hand, contain general relativity as one limit, and quantum field theory, the best theory we have of quantum phenomena, on the other. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the great challenge which we're facing in theoretical physics mm-hmm. today, and I've been devoting a lot of thought and giving some talks on this problem myself. Right, indeed. And, and indeed, uh, Einstein spent many of the last years of his life actually trying to work out a grand unified uh, theory. Well, this is a little different than unified field theory. Yeah. The unified th- field theory, Einstein's hope was modeling himself on Maxwell's work in mm-hmm. the 19th century. Maxwell had achieved the great success he did mm-hmm. by taking electricity, mm-hmm. magnetism, mm-hmm. and optics, mm-hmm. which were originally three separate fields, mm-hmm. and showing all of these could be unified and explained in terms of one classical electromagnetic theory. Mm-hmm. We now call it the classical theory, of course, at that time there was no quantum theory mm-hmm. to contrast it with, so it was just the theory of electromagnetism, Maxwell's theory. Einstein said, well, now, after 1915, he said, now I've explained gravitation mm-hmm. and inertia. I've united those two. How about electromagnetism? Why should we have electromagnetism separated from gravitation and inertia? Let's look for a theory which mm-hmm. combines the two. Mm-hmm. That was the search for unified field theory. Mm-hmm. Einstein also felt, well, if you succeeded in building such a theory, constructing such a unified field theory, and could find non-singular solutions to that theory, mm-hmm. solutions which did not have places where the fields blew up, mm-hmm. maybe those solutions would themselves be quantized. In other words, they would themselves give you the explanation for the quantum phenomenon, mm-hmm. the discreteness that you find in quantum phenomena. Mm-hmm. That hope never was realized. Mm-hmm. And for a long time, unified field theories fell out of fashion. 
Today, they're back into fashion, mm -hmm. but not in Einstein's sense. That we believe now that if you're going to find a unified field theory, first you find the classical theory and then you quantize it. Mm -hmm. And so that search goes on. But there's a different question from mm -hmm. the question of can one take existing general theory of relativity, the best mm -hmm. theory of gravitation and inertia that we have, mm -hmm. and quantize that and f make that somehow compatible with the quantum ideas. I see. And some people say, well, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to take everything into account. Uh -huh. That's essentially the path of string theory, mm -hmm. that a quantum gravity theory will only emerge from a theory of everything. Mm -hmm. But myself, coming from the general relativity tradition, we have a much more modest aim. We say, let's try to find a form of quantum theory which is compatible with the basic principle of general relativity mm. and then apply that to Einstein's theory of general relativity and get just a quantum theory of gravity without looking for anything more grand or unified <laughs> than that. Only the future will tell which path is the right one. <laughs> Certainly, string theory has got a little bit of uh, press, but it, it seems to be as pie in the sky just because uh, you can't really experimentally verify a lot of their. Uh, their and indeed, their they even have they haven't fulfilled their theoretical yeah. hopes. Mm -hmm. When I make theoretical criticisms of string theory, people often say to me, "Well, but you know, what you say might be valid, but if the theory works, what are you going to do about right. it?" Yes, I say that's true. Nothing succeeds like success, <laughs> and they say nothing fails like failure. <laughs> and in twenty, thirty years of work on string theory, they haven't really come up with the kind of explanation they originally were looking for, yeah. let alone any experimental consequences of yeah. their approach. Mm -hmm. So the better people in string theory admit that the program really has not succeeded as yet. Mm. So as I said, if nothing succeeds like success, we have to agree that nothing <laughs> fails like failure. <laughs> so I'm not saying string theory won't ultimately succeed, but so far there is no hint that it is any further along the path to success, let's say, than loop quantum gravity, the approach to general relativ quantization of general relativity, which is favored by most people working from the general relativity tradition. Mm. I see. We do have uh, a few more papers that Einstein wrote at one point, one uh, describing, I guess, Brownian motion, which led to another Nobel Prize. Yes. This was part of the first tr strand of his thought. Mm -hmm. Take classical physics and mm -hmm. develop it as far as you can and see what problems within classical physics mm -hmm. remain. Now, one of the main aims of classical physics, as it developed in the course of the 19th century, was to explain the laws of thermodynamics, the mm -hmm. behavior of bodies when they not only experience mechanical changes, but thermal changes, when mm -hmm. heat is added or subtracted to them at the same time they're doing work or having work done upon them. And the hope was that one could explain the laws of thermodynamics, which are, again, principal laws, like Einstein's principal theory of relativity, in fact, that was his model for the special theory of relativity. Thermodynamics is just based on two principles, mm -hmm. the conservation of energy and the fact that heat always flows from the hotter to the colder body, which right. is basically the second law of thermodynamics. Well, the hope was to explain all these in terms of mechanical terms. Think of matter as constructed of a lot of molecules or particles, whatever you call them, atoms, just molecules for short, let's say, mm -hmm. moving around very rapidly and interacting with each other. And can you explain the laws of thermodynamics on the basis of that model? Mm -hmm. Well, people like Maxwell and Boltzmann mm -hmm. and Clausius said, yes, you can. Mm -hmm. And they were, went a long way to try to show that. There was another school of physicists, and particularly physical chemists, at the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, said, no, we have to take phenomena as they are, and conservation of energy is the most important law. The laws of thermodynamics should be explained purely in terms of energetic concepts, and they should be exact laws. Mm -hmm. If the people who were trying to explain the laws of thermodynamics on the basis of kinetic theory of matter were correct, the thermodynamic laws should only be statistical laws. They should only be true on the average, just like if you flip a coin, mm -hmm thousand times, heads will come up half the time and tails will come up half the time on the average. Mm -hmm. But you're going to get fluctuations from that. Right. You may get a run of ten heads before you get a tail. You may get a run of three tails before you get a head. Right. That's to be expected on the basis of statistical fluctuations. Mm -hmm. Well, on the basis of kinetic theory of matter, that matter is composed of molecules moving around rapidly, and pressure and temperature and so on are just average effects of these motions, there should be fluctuations around these mm. average values. And Einstein's great achievement 
in the Brownian motion paper was to show that these fluctuations not only should exist, they had actually been observed. Uh -huh. That uh -huh. Brownian motion could be explained in terms of fluctuations around, uh -huh. the, around the thermodynamic averages. So when you look in a microscope and see the little particles moving around under mm -hmm. Brownian motion, you're actually observing violations of the laws of thermodynamics. <laughs> and Einstein was the first one to realize that. And this more or less killed the anti-atomist trend. Right. After that, it was very hard to say, no, the laws of thermodynamics are exactly correct. Mm -hmm. Once you've actually seen the fluctuations, right. which the the opposed kinetic molecular theory had predicted. Right, right. It's really amazing. And I guess the, one of the questions is, how was physics really changed from all these papers? You sort of allude to it, but maybe sort of as a grand, from the classical views then to the mo yes. more modern views. Well, two, two things. Yeah. Uh, first of all, he solidly established the kinetic molecular theory, mm -hmm. so that the challenges to that more or less mm -hmm. had to end mm -hmm. after Einstein's theoretical work and the work of Jean Perrin, mm -hmm. to whom you alluded, who won the Nobel Prize for his experimental verification of Einstein's predictions. Then his work on the special theory of relativity led him into the general theory of relativity, which I would say was the most fundamental change that Einstein brought about in our view of the world. And he himself regarded his work on the general theory of relativity as his greatest contribution, mm -hmm. because all physics up to then, Mm -hmm. And indeed, all physics after then, insofar as it's based on quantum theory, was based on the idea of fixed and given space-time structures. Mm. Now, the, he, he showed you how to modify the Newtonian concept of space and time, but in special relativity, you just placed, replaced the Newtonian concept of space and time by another fixed and given mm. concept of space and time, what we call Minkowski space-time, okay. for short. But in general theory of relativity, he showed something much more revolutionary, that the space-time structures themselves are not fixed and given. They are dynamical fields themselves. Mm -hmm. So space and time is no longer the stage on which the drama of matter and radiation unfolds. It is part of the drama. Mm -hmm. And this was so revolutionary that to this day, I think, we're still trying to assimilate the effects <laughs> of this revolution. Uh, so that's the second revolution, more general relativity mm -hmm. than special relativity, but special relativity was the prologue mm -hmm. to that. And mm -hmm. then the quantum revolution to which uh, we alluded earlier, which he showed that classical physics had to be totally revamped and mm -hmm. rebuilt on some totally new foundations. And as I said, to this day, we're still trying to bring these two revolutions, the general right. relativistic revolution and the quantum revolution, into some sort of accord with each other. Right. Because so far, they've gone their separate ways, and the attempts to bring them together into one grand quantum theory of gravity has, have not been successful. Indeed. I would say, as I said before, I think that's the challenge of this century, and maybe this, of this millennia, <laughs> to bring this about. <laughs> so I think this actually brings up an interesting question. Do, do you think that there would be another uh, person like Einstein, or a, or a year like Einstein had in 1905? It's probably harder today mm -hmm. because not only did the revolutions within physics, mm -hmm. but there was a revolution in the way physics was done, which took place at the beginning of the 20th and into the 20th century. Namely, mm -hmm. physics made the transition from handicraft to large-scale industry. Mm -hmm. At the time Einstein worked, the typical laboratory was one professor with a few assistants mm -hmm. and one theoretician working alone or with one or two collaborators. Mm -hmm. But today, of course, we've made the transition to factory, what I could call factory <laughs> physics, these huge mm -hmm. machines mm -hmm. which we have, which employ hundreds of people. Mm -hmm. Today you'll see a paper signed by 20 <laughs> or 30 people, most of whom are graduate students who've been <laughs> dragooned into working on their professor's project and may have little or no idea what's actually going on in the project. Mm -hmm. I, I regard this as a, a very mm -hmm. sad development mm -hmm. At least in, when a student does a Ph.D. project, that person should realize, well, maybe I'm only going to add a little brick to the wall of knowledge, but I better understand how that brick fits into the wall and what the wall is composed of. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid many physics students are not getting that training today. They're being put out into the world with a Ph.D. without any real understanding, deeper mm -hmm. understanding of the work that they themselves have participated in. Mm -hmm. So I'm afraid this transition from handicraft to large-scale industry makes it much more difficult for independent-minded people like Einstein to mm -hmm. succeed. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, independent-minded people, really independent-minded people, always find a way mm -hmm. around the rules, and they find a way to succeed. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> so we can hope right. that other Einsteins, male or female, 
Mm-hmm. I think more and more women are going to physics. We might hope the next Einstein might be a Miss Einstein. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> uh, curious, uh, just to sort of try and wrap up, obviously you're a physicist, but I'm curious, how did you actually become interested in, in Einstein in particular and actually directing the Center for Einstein Studies? Uh, I became interested in Einstein in the 1950s. Hmm. I both was interested in his scientific work. Hmm. As a young high school student, I started to read about theoretical physics mm-hmm. and came across the end of Einstein, obviously, mm-hmm. and started to think about his ideas. But I also respected him greatly as a political and social figure at that mm-hmm. time. This was the time of McCarthyism in America. Mm-hmm. Not Gene McCarthy, but the Senator McCarthy from Wisconsin, mm-hmm. who was trying to introduce witch hunting in the country. And Einstein was one of the few intellectuals who stood with moral principles, mm-hmm. with a backbone, I would mm-hmm. say, and said, no, you must refuse to cooperate right. with inquisitions, witch hunts, and not on the basis of the Fifth Amendment, but on the basis of the First Amendment, that mm-hmm. Congress or any other body has no right to pry into the personal political opinions of any individual. Mm. And if you have to go to jail for that, Einstein said, so be it. Mm. I'm willing to go to jail for that purpose. And that was a great inspiration to people like myself on the left who were (laughs) so upset to see how many intellectuals were caving into the pressures on them at that time. So I came to revere Einstein both as a scientist and as a political and social figure. And I'm afraid today we have need, again, of moral examples like Einstein's Mm. when we see how many intellectuals are caving into the pressures at a time again when America is being led on a path of militarism mm-hmm. and a path of uh, violations of our civil liberties. Mm-hmm. The kind of things, incidentally, which Einstein warned about as early as 1947, mm-hmm. right after the end of the Second World War, mm-hmm. beginning of the Cold War, Einstein wrote an article on American militarism, which he foresaw the possibility that we would get into a stage where we would have preventive wars, uh, violations of civil liberties, all of this being tolerated by people because it was done in the name of fighting some sort of vague threat. Right. That time it was Bolshevism, communism. Mm-hmm. Today it's international terrorism. Right. Well, everybody's against terrorism, but some of us are against state terrorism, <laughs> not only <laughs> terrorism by individuals, but terrorism by the state. And to fight terrorism by another form of state terrorism is just creating yes. not only an error, but mm-hmm. more terror. Indeed. And I think Einstein is a great example for us of moral courage in calling the shots as we see them mm-hmm. and trying to fight for the kind of America we want to see. Indeed, indeed. Well, uh, he certainly was a remarkable man in many, many areas, but uh, it does look like we're slightly out of time. And uh, (laughs) Professor Stachel, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Rocks and talking about Einstein's Miraculous Year. Thank you very much. I'm very happy to be here and uh, certainly hope many people will not only revere Einstein, but read him and think about his ideas. As somebody said in the 18th century about another German poet, who wouldn't praise a Klopstock? We'd rather be praised less and read more. (laughs) (laughs) Hear, 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 (laughs) hear. And you were just listening to Professor John Stachel discussing Einstein's Miraculous Year. You are listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. Welcome back to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, we're back from the break, and our guest, Professor John Stachel, has <laughs> graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. <laughs> the Grokatron 5000 is, of course, our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, wave or particle? 
So, I hope there's a good, substantial prize for this. <laughs> <laughs> well, the prize is, uh, I guess, self-satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> That's certainly worth a lot. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> so for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know whether they most represent a wave or a particle. So ready to play your game? Ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> okay, very good. <laughs> Here we go. Wave or particle, person number one, Oprah Winfrey. A wave. She's sort of large and wavy looking. <laughs> okay. She's like certainly a, spread out over uh, more than a particle. Uh, sure enough. Sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> or at least until she reduced. <laughs> right, right. Well, I guess there's fluctuations in yes. her waveform. That would be more wave-like, uh, too, wouldn't right, it? Right, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> okay, well, number two, then, uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump. <laughs> well, he's probably a standing wave reverberating around the world. <laughs> okay. I think his influence is really felt. It's a little everywhere. Yeah. And I'm, fr- I'm afraid too many people are in resonance with that wave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd rather see some sort of uh, counteracting wave that could uh, cancel him out. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, number three, uh, contemporary of Einstein's, Niels Bohr. Niels Bohr. Uh, the principle of complementarity would have to be, have a, both a wave-like and a particle-like <laughs> aspect, <laughs> wouldn't he? Yes, indeed. <laughs> and uh, number four, George Lucas. Ah, George Lucas, the director. I have no idea. What did he direct? Star Wars? Star Wars, yeah. Well, okay, stars are particle-like, so I guess he would have to be particles. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) (laughs) All right, and finally, the president of the United States, George Bush. Well, I wish he were a a photon traveling at the speed of light away from us. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Well, I think that sentiment is shared by a lot of people. (laughs) All right, well, Professor Stetchel, I do want to thank you very much for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Okay. Playing our game and, of course, talking about Einstein's Miraculous Year. My pleasure. And Yoda with the answer to last week's question of the week. The Keck 1 and Keck 2, largest telescopes they are. In Hawaii they reside, and see the skies very far they do. <clears throat> and those are the largest telescopes. Alright then, Clarice, thank you very much. It's Hannibal Lecter with this week's question of the week. Ooh, the fava beans in Chianti stimulate my taste buds, but... <sighs> Not as many flavors as I would like. Well, how many can I taste? Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but you just might fill my tummy. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs> <laughs>